morning, everyone. Great to uh, see all of you here. Um, I have appreciated uh, being able to preach with uh, the few people who are generally here, uh, and our worship teams have made that pleasant. They, they say amen, they smile at me, um, but this is, uh, this is nice too, to have all of you here, and uh, we look forward to uh, this number growing. Daniel chapter 9 today, and I hope you've got a Bible or you've got your device ready Uh, We're going to look at a fascinating passage of Scripture, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, sometimes known as uh, Daniel's weeks, and a really important passage when it comes to Bible prophecy. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. We're going to see three things today. First of all, we're going to see that in these verses is spelled out for us an agenda that God has an agenda, specifically in this passage, for the people of Israel, but we're going to see there's lots of overlap with what he's intending to do in the whole world for all the people of the world. Secondly, in these verses, we're going to see that God has a schedule uh, that actually has a timeline attached to it. And then thirdly, we're going to see that there's some application from us that flows out of this agenda of God and this schedule of God. So let's read these verses starting in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now maybe I could just ask for a volunteer who'd come and explain all of this for everyone because this is a bit of a tall task. Uh, There are many different interpretations about this passage. Uh, I'm going to share one with you that I I think is probably the most common and, uh, and perhaps the most safest and for me also very exciting. But this is a tricky passage. Uh, When I read scripture and when I study scripture, I'm always looking for the obvious. Sometimes we take scripture passages that are tricky and we bend them and twist them into something that fits our theology, but sometimes it's best to just take the plain meaning that's before us. The tough part on a passage like this is it doesn't always seem like the meaning is plain. But let's begin with this. What was God's agenda? He spells out, as, as the angel is giving this vision, this prophecy to Daniel, He gives us God's agenda. I wonder if you noticed it there. 
Seventy sevens, verse 24, are decreed for your people and your holy city. That's obviously a reference to the Jewish people, to the city of Jerusalem. And then notice six things. Number one, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. Those are the first three. And then three more, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. I think this is really important because it gives us God's agenda. In fact, if you know the story of the Bible, we see that this, this is really the whole story. This is what has been happening throughout history. God began with a good and perfect creation, and the people that he created rebelled against him and rejected his rule and stepped out from under the rule and the blessing of God. And the rest of history and the rest of, of God's story through history is about God restoring and redeeming what we destroyed and what we lost. And that's really what these six items are about. We, we see in this passage specifically for the people of Israel, but this is the big story of history and the Bible as well. So what is God doing in this redemption? He's going to finish transgression. He's going to, this literally means he's going to put an end to rebellion. When I think about that phrase, I go all the way back to Adam and Eve, because that's really what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. They rebelled against God, against his rule, against his, his blessing. They stepped from under that. They, in a sense, said, we will not have God rule over us. And God's agenda in redemption is to put an end to this. And we can blame Adam and Eve, but the truth is all of us have done the very same thing that they did. Why do we have a world of sin? It's because every one of us have participated in the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Every one of us have contributed to this. Every one of us has stepped out from the rule and blessing of God. And because of that, we've caused harm to ourselves and to others. That's why we live in a world like we, we live in. God is going to put an end to this rebellion. Either because he's going to redeem and restore people back to himself or he will ultimately punish people who refuse to receive him as king and savior. Secondly, he's going to put an end to sin. The word here is he's going to seal up. And when I think about that, do you remember, the, do you remember that huge oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago? This, this, this oil was spewing from underwater. Do you remember that? I remember watching this on the news and it took them a long time to figure this out. And, but finally they were able to put this cap down on top of that. And that's what I picture here when I think about, about this phrase. God is going to put an end to sin. He's going to seal it up. There will no longer be sin spewing out of us and spewing out of this world into the beauty uh, that God has made. God is going to seal that over. And then it says that he's going to atone for wickedness. Three different words here used for sin. The point is, call it what you want. Uh, it's, it simply references to the same thing using different words. It gives us different shades of meaning of what sin actually is. It's rebellion. It's, it's wickedness. But here we find God's agenda is to atone. A beautiful theme all through the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament in the sacrifices. Sacrifices that were meant to provide atonement, covering over of the sin of God's people. And then we find in Christ, atonement comes once and for all. 
In fact, the Old Testament sacrifices didn't provide ultimate atonement. They pointed to Jesus, who he himself would provide ultimate atonement. That's God's agenda. Praise him for that. That's why we're here today. That's why we celebrate the salvation we have, because God is doing this work of atonement. And then we find in God's agenda is he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Don't you long for this? I mean, we should long for this. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This should be the great longing of our hearts. We should long for righteousness to flow out of our lives. We should long for righteousness to flow in this world. When I think about all that we're dealing with in our world today and frustrations we may have with our government, imagine what it will be like when Jesus is the king of the whole world, when he sits on a throne of perfect justice and righteousness, the prince of peace ruling here. What what will it be like? It will be the ushering in of everlasting righteousness. That's God's plan. We get to participate that in a small way now, but there's a time coming when this will be fully consummated when Jesus returns to the earth. And then we find the same word again that we saw in number two, a sealing up again, not of sin this time, but a sealing up of vision and prophecy. I'm not sure exactly what this phrase means, but I wonder if it's kind of like when we finish the peanut butter jar at our house. Um, I don't know if you need to, do you need to rinse out the jar before you put it in recycling? I don't know if you need to do that, but we sometimes do that. So, you know, run a little hot water, shake out the peanut butter, put the lid on and throw it away. In recycling, sorry. In recycling, it goes in recycling. And that's kind of the picture I have here, that there's a time coming when God's not going to have to send his prophets visions. He's not going to have to send his prophets to his people and warn them about what's to come and the judgment that's going to come and and the good future that's going to come. He's not going to have to do that anymore because it's going to be here. We don't need that jar of peanut butter anymore. Put the lid on and put it in recycling. We're done with that. That's the way I understand this phrase. There's a time coming when we're not going to study prophecy anymore because we're going to see with our own eyes the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And then this final one, number six of God's agenda, is to anoint the most holy. Now, my version says the most holy place. Literally, this is kind of interesting, literally, this is anointing of the holy holy. It's the word holy said twice. And the reason it's translated holy place is because that's the way the holiest of holies is described in the Old Testament. Remember the holiest place in the temple, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was? When the writers of, uh, of, of the Bible, or Moses, wrote about the holiest of holies, he wrote holy holy. That was what that place was called. So that's why some translations describe it as the anointing of the most holy place, trying to be consistent with the way that this is used in other parts of the Old Testament. I tend to think that's not what this is about. In fact, we're going to see the word anointing or anointed one in a moment, and it's referring to a person. In fact, what was the ultimate fulfillment of the holiest of holies? It was a person, wasn't it? The main thing wasn't that place in the temple where the uh, the Ark of the Covenant sat. Ultimately, What all of that pointed to was a person, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. 
In fact, in Revelation 21, when we read about the ultimate temple, ultimate sanctuary, we find out there, there is no temple in the eternal city except for God and Christ. They are the eternal temple. So I tend to think that the, this anointing of the most holy or the holy holy is actually a reference to Jesus, partly because we're going to see a reference to Jesus being called the anointed one, but also because he is the ultimate fulfillment of redemption. He is the final, um, the, the final ending of all that God is doing in redemption. It's Jesus. He's the one who produces redemption for us through his death. He is the author and finisher of our faith. But he's also the capstone of the whole thing. He's the, he's the one at the very end that we end up praising and worshiping and adoring. It's everything. Jesus is everything in God's agenda. So I tend to think that this sixth point isn't about the temple or a place or the city, but about Jesus himself. This is God's agenda. I wonder how excited we are about this agenda. Like, how often do we think about these things? How often do we get out of bed in the morning and think, I wonder what I can do to participate in the agenda of God? I mean, I know what I'm like. I tend to, uh, just so you know how old school I am. I mean, Andreas has got a phone. He, everything's on the phone, right? We're in meetings, and there's buzzers going off to remind him when to tie his shoes and different things. And uh, <clears throat> I'm old school. I still got the paper version. And then, oh, you want to see my to-do list? Here it is. He's probably got the electronic version. By the way, is it right for him to be picking wildflowers? Like, isn't that against the law? Very concerned about that. I thought he was going to say there was no flowers there when he he walked this morning. Well, yeah, because he picked them all the other day. Here's my to-do list. You can't see it. It's way too long. It's going to be a lot longer this summer. I'm old school with these things. But here's the thing. We tend to live by our own agenda. But when we're the people of God, we are invited into God's agenda. We're invited into his schedule. And we live not for our own agenda, not for our own kingdom, not for our own bank account, but we get to participate in the things that God is doing. That's what it means to be the people of God. So that's God's agenda as we see in that first verse, Daniel 9, 24. But then we have a schedule. It begins, as we see in verse 25, know and understand this. Begins with this, the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This is now a timeline, a kind of schedule. So the the beginning point of God's agenda or his timeline for his agenda is a command, a word to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, when was that? This is a little bit tricky because we got the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We have uh, various decrees that happened uh, first from Cyrus for the people to go back, the people of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. They could go back now to the land. And at, at first they were rebuilding the temple. Then there was opposition and and someone was able to get the work stopped by accusing the Jews of trying to rebel. And so there was another decree. And then in the book of Nehemiah, there's another decree under another king named Artaxerxes. Some people uh, claim to know exact dates for all these things. And I would argue that 
it's, it's difficult for us to nail these things down. There may come a time, actually. History has unveiled various things about when Cyrus ruled and when Artaxerxes ruled, which actually helps us with this timeline. And maybe over time, there'll be new information that helps us pinpoint these things even further. But we know this, the starting point from God's perspective was this command to rebuild Jerusalem. And then we have um, these strange numbers. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now more literally, this is the word that uh, would have been used for a week. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now my interpretation, and I think the most common interpretation, is that these weeks are weeks of years. They're seven year. One of the reasons that we see that, if you go back to verse 2 of Daniel 9, Daniel says this, in the first year of his reign, of Darius, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Does anyone know why did Israel have to go into captivity for 70 years? Well, we know from other parts of scripture, from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 25 and 26, also from Leviticus, I think that's also 20, chapter 25, no, 15 and 16, Second Chronicles, chapter 36, what we read there is a reminder that God told his people, you let the, the land rest every seven years. It's a Sabbath year. And what he said was, if you don't do the Sabbath year, if you don't let the land rest, then I will take you into captivity and the land will get its rest. It will get its Sabbath years. So what this means is that Israel would go into captivity, Judah would go into captivity for 70 years, evidently because there'd been about 490 years where they had not obeyed the command to let the land rest, the Sabbath year. They just kept farming all the way through. So in other words, we have 490 years of sin leading to these 70 years of captivity. And then a few verses later, we have Daniel talking about 7 times 7 and 62 times 7. It's not really a huge leap to understand that he's potentially referring here to, again, 490 years. 70 sevens or 70 weeks or 70 times 70 years. 7 times 7, seven, times seven years. And that's the common understanding of these verses. This is the timeline that's commonly understood. Now, one question I have is, why does it separate this first seven from the next 62? It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't explain this. Some people say, well, that's the 49 years it took to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us that. But for whatever reason, it splits up the first seven from the next 62. But it tells us very clearly that after those first 69 sevens, what does it say? Until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Now, who is the anointed one? Who, who would the Jewish people have thought of as the anointed one? Especially as we come to the end of the Old Testament, they're dealing with captivity. Uh, we all know who the anointed one was. It was the Messiah. It was the one that was promised all through the Old Testament. It was a king who was going to come and liberate and redeem God's people. And we, of course, now know that this is Jesus. 
That's my understanding of this. That's the common understanding of this. That from the word to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be these 49 plus 434 is 483 years until the anointed one comes. We believe that to be Jesus. Now some people claim to know the exact date when Artaxerxes commanded for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And some people say you can count the exact days and what you end up with is the triumphal entry. Uh, There's so much speculation and people argue about the dates. And were they talking about 365 day years or were they talking about lunar years, which was only like 450 days or or was it uh, the common 360 day years? People use all of these different numbers. I'm just telling you, it's really difficult to pinpoint to that kind of precision with any kind of certainty. What we do know is roughly from the time of Artaxerxes, who ruled around 450 BC, until the time of Jesus, who was born uh, either at zero or three AD, and died either at 30 or 33 AD, most scholars believe, is around 483 years. So whether it was specifically to his triumphal entry, I can't say for sure. Uh, was it a reference to when he was baptized, when, uh, when the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son, as, as kind of an introduction to his ministry? Or was it when he was born? We, d- we don't know the answer specifically, but this is a remarkable prophecy that points from, it would seem, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah, the command to rebuild the city walls to the very time of Jesus, 483 years. When did Daniel prophesy this? When did he write these things down? He wrote these things down a long time before Jesus came. In fact, that's one of the beauties of studying the book of Daniel when it comes to Bible prophecy, because the precision that he brings to this topic is incredible. If you read through the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel, at the end of the Babylonian captivity or kingdom, prophesies as he's given visions of various beasts about the the Medo-Persian Empire, which came after Babylon, and then the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire. The detail that Daniel brings to these things. For example, Alexander the Great had no son who took the throne after him of, of the Grecian Empire. So the empire was divided up into, and given to his four top commanders, generals. Well, Daniel describes that, this beast that has four, four wings and, and, and the kingdom is divided into these four parts. It's amazing, so much so that many uh, critics have said that actually Daniel was written after all this happened and it was just given this spin of prophecy before the time. We, of course, believe, no, this is God, this is God's word. And it's one of the beauties of the book of Daniel is it encourages our faith to believe the prophecies of things that have yet to happen, including some that we're going to see here. Why can we be confident? Because the things God said would already happen, have happened. So 483 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until we believe Jesus, the anointed one, the ruler comes. Notice it says, uh, it will be rebuilt, the city of Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. You might remember the story of Nehemiah. Do you remember how they had to rebuild the wall? With their swords strapped on their side. Trowel in one hand, sword in the other hand. That's the times of trouble, I think, that 
the prophecy is alluding to. Verse 26, notice the word here, after. After the 62 sevens, or after, you could say the 69 sevens, after the 483 years, the anointed one will be put to death. Did that happen to Jesus? It absolutely happened to Jesus. Notice the word there. He will have nothing in verse 26. That's, that's an interesting phrase. Jesus coming to his own people. His own people did not receive him. Coming as the king of the Jews, dying on a Roman cross. From a Jewish perspective, he had not conquered the Romans. From a Jewish perspective, he, he had not uh, brought the kingdom in under his own rule. From a human perspective, this was utter failure. But of course, we know in hindsight that the death of Christ was producing everything that God's agenda was seeking. But the anointed one is put to death. He will have nothing. Then it says, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Did that happen? It happened in 70 AD that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. They came in and destroyed the city. They destroyed, they tore the temple down. That happened. We know that in history. Notice all of this is simply in this little, it seems a parenthesis, a little category that says after after the 483 years. It says the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. Now this is tricky stuff. Several times here we're going to see the phrase the end. And then we come to verse 27. And we find a simple pronoun, he. Now notice who is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. It was the people of the ruler who will come. If this interpretation is right, we know those people were the Romans. Who is the ruler who is to come? We would understand it to be the same person who's referred to in verse 27, the pronoun he. This is the ruler. The ruler who is to come. So in verse 26, the destruction of the sanctuary and of Jerusalem was done by the people of the ruler, but evidently not the ruler. But then in verse 27, we have what seems to be this ruler, and now he's confirming a covenant with many for one seven. Now we come to the final seven. And so there's this parenthesis. In fact, many scholars believe that we're still living in this parenthesis, this after period, after the 483 weeks before the final seven. That seems to be depicted here in these verses. These things happen before the final seven begins. Daniel would suggest, and other portions of Scripture would suggest, that ultimately the one we know as the Antichrist, this ruler who is to come, is coming somehow out of a revived Roman Empire. There has never been a world empire a, a government that ruled the whole known world since the Roman Empire. The nations of the world, nations of the Western world in particular, have come out of that Roman Empire that dissolved. And at some point, we understand there's going to be this revival of the Roman Empire or some kind of a peace treaty that brings all of these nations together. He, 
I understand, likely to be this Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So here's what's happening in the last week after what appears to be a parenthesis. There's a covenant made between this ruler and then there's the abomination of desolation. Jesus mentioned this as well, by the way. This is one of the beauties of Bible prophecy is when we see various parts of the Bible speaking of the same thing. Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation, which we're going to look at next week, I believe, in his uh, teaching on end times in what we know as the Olivet Discourse. So this is the schedule. 490 years, 483 of those years seem to lead up to the person of Christ, and after those years, he's killed. Then the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple, are destroyed. It says that war will continue, which appears to be that parenthesis that we're living in right now, in which the history of the world has never known an end to war at any time up to the present day. But then the final seven comes, which would appear to us to be still future. And there's this ruler, the one we know as the Antichrist, who's going to make a covenant, and then he's going to break the covenant, and there's going to be this abomination of desolation. This is amazing prophecy. Now, some of this is yet to come. Why would we be confident that it's true, that it's going to happen? It's because everything else that was prophesied and promised has happened. Everything up to this point in the timeline, in the schedule, has happened. So we can be confident about the final seven because we've seen God is faithful to his promises. In closing, I want to think of a few lessons that we can see from this schedule and from the agenda of God. Here's the first obvious one. God is sovereign. I know that's a big theological word, but it's an important word. It simply means that God is in control. God sits on a throne. And even though in this world people by and large reject him and his rule, nevertheless God is still in control. We see this all through Scripture. There are so many Scriptures that refer to the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Proverbs 16, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19, it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Isaiah 46, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. One of the most remarkable places we see the truth of God's sovereignty is in the book of Acts. When Peter is is preaching in the early days of the church and he's explaining to the Jewish people who were opposing the early believers and he says, you took and crucified your Messiah. But he explains to them that even as they committed that evil, that God had predetermined it to be. This is the amazing sovereignty of God. He doesn't not excuse sin. He doesn't cause us to sin. He doesn't encourage us to sin. But in his sovereignty, he takes the wickedness of humanity and he uses it to bring about his purposes of redemption. God is sovereign. So we think about the events of our own lives and the painful things that come into our life that weren't expected and, and we didn't want them. And in those moments, we trust that God is in control, that he's sovereign. We think about the bigger events of the world and this pandemic that we've just lived through for the last 18 months or more. That is no surprise to God. 
God is in control. God sits on a throne. He's sovereign. And this is why as we look to the future, we just have so much confidence that God is in control, that God is fulfilling his purposes. Number two, God's purpose is redemption. As I mentioned, this grand story of the Bible is God's story of redemption. He's restoring all things. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to have a people for himself who are willing by faith to live under his rule and under his blessing. He's going to spend eternity living with those people. They're going to see him face to face. God's purpose is redemption. And this needs to direct us in terms of our lives and what we live for and what's important to us and what our hope is. God's purpose is redemption. Here's the verses that uh, Mark shared with us a couple of weeks ago. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This is the message of the Bible. God's purpose is redemption. Finally, this. This challenge for us this morning. Whose agenda and whose schedule are we on? Do we have plans for ourselves? Do we, do we have goals and purposes for ourselves? What gets us out of bed in the morning? What motivates us to live the life that we live? It is convicting for me to recognize that there have been far too many times in my life where I'm just on my own agenda. Where what I want is what I want. And God has invited me in to be part of what he's doing and to help bring about this work of redemption in the lives of other people. But I'm simply on my own agenda. Scripture warns us about this as well. 2 Peter 3. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed. It's coming. Don't you love that phrase? It's possible for us as the people of God to so look forward to the coming of Jesus that we speed its coming. It's, it's, like we're, it's like our kids are in a race at school and we're standing on the sidelines and we're cheering them on and they're coming down towards us, toward the finish line. And we're saying, you can do it, come. And, and we're cheering on God and we're cheering on Christ and we're saying, Come. This is what we really want. We want to see Jesus. We want to see redemption fulfilled. We want to see God's plan fully enacted in the world. Don't we? Or do we? Are there other things we long for, we love? We pour our lives into these things. We're trying to, to make more, earn more, have more. But if we're truly the people of God, this is what we want. This is what we long for. This is what we cheer and hope for it's the coming of Jesus. And again in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, eager to do what is good. Folks, we have such an incredible hope, a confidence, a certainty that as the people of God, Jesus 
He's going to come back to this world. He's going to fully make us his own. He's going to transform us. He's, he's going to have us living in his presence for all eternity. And now, we're living in a parenthesis, in a moment between his first coming and his second coming, where now as the people of God, he invites us to be the ones who bring good news. We get to be those, as Isaiah said, the, the, the beautiful feet the ones with the mouth to bring the good news. We get to participate in all that God is doing. We get to be part of his redemptive plan. We get to enter into his agenda. We get to make his schedule our schedule. Do we? What a privilege. What an awesome opportunity we have every moment that God gives us breath to live shoulder to shoulder with a sovereign God to long for all that he longs for to do all that he does and to help by his grace to bring about the redemption that he has promised that is our privilege may it be true of us may it be true of me may it be true of this church and all for the glory of God so that more and more people can know about this holy, holy, this anointed Jesus, who alone can bring redemption. We're going to sing in closing, and then I'll come again and pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God who rules from a throne of sovereignty, the God who created our world and this universe, a God who has plans. You're not fooled by humanity. Uh, you're not hemmed in by humanity. You are the one who's in control. We thank you, Lord, that you have a plan of redemption. How is it that a God who is so holy and so good could have a plan to restore people who've been so wicked Lord, that includes us. We don't deserve to be your people, but only because of what Jesus has done can we call ourselves sons and daughters of God. We thank you for what you've done. I pray, Father, that you'd give us hearts of faith and hope for a future day when we will be in your presence. And for now, Lord, I pray that we would live our lives by your agenda and by your schedule. Give us hearts to do this, for your honor and glory, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you. Thank you for being with us. You can be seated. And uh, we'll see you again next week.